Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. This is episode 114, February of 2019. Our guest this month is S.P. Monahan. S.P. is a playwright, an actor, and works as a development funding assistant at The Lark, an international theater laboratory based in New York City. S.P. penned an essay that appeared on The Lark's blog in December of 2018. The essay was called Dear Cisgender Writer, and in it, S.P. encouraged cisgender writers not to shy away from including transgender characters in their work. As a cisgender playwright, I initially found this a somewhat uncomfortable prospect. How do I, as a cisgender playwright, include a character whose life I do not fully understand and do so without it being a gratuitous inclusion? How can I include trans characters and do justice to the trans community? Sort of a, a red herring. I mean, if a playwright cisgender or transgender mm -hmm. if a playwright decides that they're going to write a play that includes transgender characters and that they are going to rightfully maintain that the play must be cast with transgender actors playing those transgender characters yes. they're making their play much harder to produce there are a lot of theaters in parts of the country that are going to pass on that because they're going to think that they don't have the resources to cast that appropriately so I'm like I'm not especially concerned with if a playwright, you know, has a play where there's a minor character. If the playwright decides they're going to make that minor character transgender, that really doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I think it's fantastic. Um, regardless of whether or not that gender identity is important to the plot, just by virtue of the fact that they're including a transgender human in their vision of the world. I, I don't think that the tokenism question really applies. I mean, if that play gets produced, a transgender actor is being cast, uh, assuming that the writer crafted that character with, you know, respect and humanity, there's not going to be any, any harm caused. Uh, and if the worst case scenario in that is, you know, if a writer is, being uh, looking for sort of attention at having written that transgender character, yeah. that doesn't really bother me just because uh, they've written a transgender character and they're calling attention to a, a transgender human. Um, assuming so, assuming all other things about it are okay and respectful and and you know presents that character as I said with humanity, uh, I don't really think that's a, a problem. Having said that. I was a little surprised. I, I thought when I wrote this blog post that I wrote for The Lark, Dear Cisgender mm -hmm. Writer, right. I thought that I made it clear, but perhaps not clear enough. Um, I was not necessarily saying that I think cisgender writers should uh, take it upon themselves to write, quote, transgender stories, to write stories that are explicit expressly about the transgender experience. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't really advocating for that or I wasn't intending to. Well, that would um, be an extraordinarily, that would be an extraordinary leap. Yeah. I, thanks. I'm glad you said that. But I, <laughs> I, to be honest, I did see in some of the response that I got to the post on social media that that was the first place that people's minds sort of were going was, mm -hmm. yeah. oh, for, for I, there was one very, um, 
you know, high profile cisgender musical theater writer in particular, and I'm, and I really love her work and sort of right off the bat, she asked, you know, is it okay for me then to like write a musical about a, a trans person? Should I do this? Um, and then on the flip side, I, I got feedback from a, another trans playwright on Twitter who said, um, you know, cisgender playwrights, you know, we should not be issuing this call. Um, or if we are, we should include sort of the very explicit caveat that they need to, you know, have a, a huge amount of sort of consultancy from trans artists or other trans folks. And um, I really sort of in my head, you mentioned, you know, why why did I write this piece for the Lark's blog? Yeah, what, and, what, what caused um, you to set pen to paper on this one? Because this is a very big, touchy subject. It is, and it's it's funny because I I was very intentional about writing it, but I I really took for granted sort of the uh, audience that it would reach. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, I, I work at the Lark. It's my my full time day job. So, I was asked by someone if I had any interest in writing something for the blog by someone in our communications team, not leading me to you know in any direction about what I should write about, but just offering that that's a, a space where I could write something if I if I was interested. So I just sort of did that and I was spurred to write this because of a conversation that I had had with a collaborator of mine um, who is cisgender. He's a cisgender musical theater writer and we have we recently were commissioned to write a musical that is a it's a two character musical and one of the characters is uh, is transgender. And he said, you know, how he, he would not have written this piece without me. And that makes sense to me, you know, where I, I'm the book writer. So the story sort of came from me, but then he sort of went a step further and talked about how for him as a cisgender writer, he feels like he can't include trans characters and, um, he feels touchy about including characters with disabilities, um, in his work because he doesn't feel that that's his place. Uh, well, I think a lot of that comes from, and I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, I had a no, play, yeah. I, I had a short play a few years ago. Okay. I okay. had a number of characters who were non-binary okay, mm-hmm. for a reason. It was, well, it was basically eight dildos in group therapy, but that's besides the point. And one of the actors that uh, I cast is trans mm-hmm. and he came up to me and said, okay, one of the questions you need to ask here is why is this character trans? Why is this character gender fluid? Um, because if you write about a black person, somebody's going to ask, why is this character black? Why does this character need to be black? What is your relationship to the black experience? What is your relationship to the trans experience? And what gives you the right to appropriate my mm. existence, okay, in one of your works? And I was quite taken aback by this. The question had always been there. And I always tried to justify who I wrote about with something in the script that meant that this person, this character, had to be trans. This person had to be black. This person had to be female. This person had to be whatever the characterization is. So I think we're talking around the same thing here. When you get into the question of appropriation and that's definitely like a very charged and real feeling for um, a lot of people from 
different marginalized communities. Sure. I, yeah. I definitely, I am a playwright, but I was a child actor. And so part of me feels like I also definitely wrote this piece and, and I've been thinking about it from sort of an acting perspective because there are so many roles in plays that get written every year that the gender of the character, the identity of the character, the race of the character is an open question. I mean, could be you, you could have minor roles in a play that could be played by, you know, an actor that's cisgender or transgender, uh, you know, across a racial spectrum, you know, ability, you know, across many intersections, Absolutely. it could be cast. Yes. However, there's the, the tendency when it comes to that job of casting director is to sort of honor the playwright's vision, the playwright's intent. And, you know, we see constantly, especially when we're talking about estates and plays by playwrights who are dead, you know, estates getting into battles and shutting down productions because they don't agree with casting uh, a role um, as a different race or gender than it's been previously played or than the author may have expressed explicitly expressed while they were alive. Exactly. Um, we're talking about the Albie thing. Yeah, the Albie thing and the recent revival of All My Sons that's coming up where yes. the director yeah. departed from the project because of disagreements with the Miller estate. And and like I can think of many others, uh, you know, the, the Beckett estate, the mm -hmm. Brecht estate, the Thornton Wilder estate. So part of me thinks, and I come back to, uh, uh, I'm thinking like specifically of a play, not that I think this playwright, I'm not like faulting the playwright for not doing this, but I think of this play that I saw just a couple years ago at Hero Arts Center where there was a character who um, was a barista and like that barista character could have been a trans woman, you know, by specifying in the script on behalf of the playwright that this character is trans, regardless of whether or not she doesn't need to talk about her gender identity in the course of the play. But what you're doing is you're, you're guaranteeing a transgender actor a job. Right. Um, that's really hard. It's really hard to be a trans performer. And so I, I, I mean, for one thing, there are no answers that I can necessarily provide, like the right answer. All I have is sort of my take. And on the other hand, with that play that I just mentioned with the barista, there was yeah. another play that I saw a few years ago by a trans playwright where there was a trans woman who ran a pawn shop. And there was a scene where you know, she talked about gender transition, where she talked about hormone replacement therapy. And it caught me by surprise because it seemed like extremely, at least from my perspective, personal information for her to be sort of volunteering to like a stranger who's come into her pawn shop. And so I, I one part of me does wonder, you know, did that playwright feel the need to justify the existence of the trans character in the world? I, I mean, that that. See, I feel sort of icky saying that, yeah, and I know it's 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 a very you, know, you mentioned that icky it was a trans actor who said that to you. Yeah. But I feel sort of icky just about the idea of like having to justify a trans character's existence because I don't I don't have to justify my existence in the world. Um, I mean, there are times when I'm made to feel as if I do, but like I exist. So um, the idea that you in writing a play have to justify right. the existence of a trans character. Uh, that just like feels icky to me. We exist in the world. Of Justification course, yeah. ends there. The in terms is, of a, it's a long it, road yeah. to normalization. I mean, there are identities in society that are normalized, and there are identities now that are on the road to being normalized because the playwright writes the play, 
And depending upon who that playwright is, whether or not those characters are a regular part of his, her, or their world, is a small bubble right there. But then it goes to the theater. And then it goes to casting. And whether or not you find somebody who is mm -hmm. culturally appropriate or generally appropriate to fit that role is another step. And then it goes to the audience. And if it goes to uh, an off-Broadway audience, you're going to get a certain kind of people whose feeling of normalization is fairly wide. If it goes to, and I apologize to the folks in Nebraska, but you might get, yeah, a, much, totally. you might get a much narrower scope of what is normal. And when you say, yes, you, I mean, you don't have to normal, you know, justify your own existence. That is perfectly true. It's a question of, like I said before, if I am a writer from, let's say, a, cis, you know, a cisgender writer... Okay. Mm -hmm. I have to be very careful if I'm worried about treating you as a trans person with the respect yeah. or using your identity as an aspect of my play that is while, yes, I'm giving a, a trans actor a job. Yay for me. That's wonderful. Why am I doing that? Why? What does it serve the play to have that in there? You write in, you write in your article don't let the fear of being called out prevent you from bringing a trans character to life in your world. Don't be fragile. For me, it's not a question of being fragile. It's a question of respecting you as a person through my work. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I hear that and I appreciate that. And I appreciate the intentionality with which you express that. At The Lark, there's, um, we just came back from a staff retreat and we have discussion guidelines. And, and my favorite discussion guideline is um, essentially that, you know, impact is more important than intent. And I think that the impact that happens a lot, I mean, the impact of cisgender writers shying away from incorporating transgender characters into their work is that there are less transgender characters in the theatrical canon. Mm -hmm. And I definitely appreciate that. I mean, it, it would be... I show, I'm sure also meaning no disrespect to the good people of Nebraska, that it would be received differently and that there would be audience members who would be shocked if there were a play that they're going to see that has a, you know, a barista character who's trans and it's not addressed or it's not spoken about explicitly. That's just that person who exists in that world. I think that would be great, though. Where I'm going, I didn't realize sort of that this is what I was feeling until this conversation. So I'm very grateful for being able to have it. So thank you, George. Um, but I guess I'm feeling like this is a, another step we need to take uh, to start. It, it is definitely, I hear everything you're saying about wanting to treat uh, transgender characters with you know the utmost dignity and respect um, because you want to reflect that dignity and respect to the trans folks in your life and, and, you know, those in, in the world. Um, I think ready or not, we, we start, we need to start taking the plunge to that. The next step in normalization is to just let go of some of that apprehension mm -hmm. because I assume if you're writing a character, regardless of their gender identity, that you're already, and this is a benefit of the doubt that I'm just sort of extending to all playwrights mm -hmm. because I love playwrights. I'm, I assume that you're already treating that character with dignity and humanity and, and care and respect. And the, the, the fear of, well, why should this character be transgender? 
the first thought that pops into my head is, well, why should they be cisgender? Just just because I assume that's you know the majority of the of the population that's the dominant mm-hmm. culture with what it dictates and what it expects. But um, I'd love to see more people upend that question or or reject that question. Why should this person be transgender? Why should I be transgender? Why should anyone be transgender? Uh-huh. Yeah. Because we, we just are, because we exist. In, so, in a sense, that's a yeah. harder question, I think, than the one I asked. But I sort of, because I sort of just feel like the question is in and of itself, like kind of, the question that I asked is just sort of like sort of ridiculous because why should this person wear a hat? Why right. should this hat exist? You know, these just are things that exist in the world. They do. I definitely, they, they do. do. I, and so it's... I definitely feel when it comes to sort of appropriation, if it's an appropriation of trans narratives, um, because I did, I did, I was in a table read, this is about three years ago. So I had only recently um, come out as uh, it had only been about a year since I'd come out myself as mm-hmm. trans non-binary. And I was asked to be in a table read of a play. I was not given the play ahead of time. And it was about like a, a group of boys, cisgender men who in the 1990s in a college fraternity were sort of experimenting with drag. And then one of them sort of was confused about their gender identity and and potentially started identifying as as transgender and I did get upset when I read this play because it did feel appropriative part of the reason it felt mm-hmm. appropriative is because all of the the entire sort of cultural frame of reference surrounding the trans identity was a like very cisgender perspective it really it like centered the play centered around like Shakespeare and actors in Shakespeare in the Elizabethan era dressing yeah. as women. Absolutely, and I, yes. and I sort of, that's not like a thing that in trans culture, you know, if, if this character as expressed in the play is, has now submersed themselves, immersed themselves in, in trans culture of the 1990s in, you know, in New York in sort of the Paris is burning era. I'm like, they're not going to run into a bunch of people talking about Elizabethan actors. Like that's not the, conversation. So it felt sort of unresearched in the same way that like it would have felt unresearched if this playwright had written a play set in the 1880s and was had a bunch of anachronisms in it. There's that. I feel like I, I lost the thread partway through there with what I was <laughs> it's thinking. A, it's, it's a big question. It's, and it is. it's an extremely emotional question. And it can be very confusing trying to navigate the landscape of every consideration that you need to take into account with this. I do appreciate yeah. talking to you about this. And I... I think this conversation needs to happen more mm-hmm. because there are a lot of people out there who do not understand what non-binary means, who do not understand how a Don't person I know could it. Yeah. Be, yeah, uh, who, how a person can be transgender because, you know, we, we've grown up with these stereotypes and we've grown up with these walls and borders that, you know, only only the brave dare to go beyond. So, I think conversation is the key and yeah, I was talking about normalization. And I just think, yeah, normalization and conversation. And I think the like the visual is critical. I think seeing transgender people is critical, and people is critical to the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of normalization, sense, but sort of also just simply for our survival. And cisgender writers, it's one thing the theater, you know, it, but also I extend what I said to television. I mean. How many roles are there that are 
you know, under five lines day players in a television episode, like what, what would it take for a writer in a writer's room to say, I've decided that this barista or this cab driver or this, this mm-hmm. doctor is trans, you know, without the show having to be pose, which is fabulous or be transparent, you know, without having to make it a, a program or a narrative that is centered on the sort of quality of transness exactly. and the nature yeah. of gender itself, just put that person there. And, and I, and I did say as a slight caveat to that, which I think also addresses the question of appropriation. Um, I said in my article, you know, if, if Warner brothers said, we're going to make a, a major motion picture about, you know, insert trans icon here. You know, we're going to make a major motion picture about Marsha P. Johnson, about Sylvia Rivera. Um, yes, I would rather that the writer who gets hired to tell that story be a transgender writer. Um, I, for many reasons, including that I'd love to see a, a trans writer get yeah. that paycheck. What other kind of responses did you get from this essay? Because you intimated earlier that you may have written a larger essay than the amount of words you put into it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I got some response that was direct. And then um, I also felt that there was some sort of indirect zeitgeist response as well. Um, in terms of direct response I received, um, you know, I mentioned that that cisgender musical theater writer who was engaging with it. And uh, I also had a, another, I had, I had two responses from trans folks, one of whom was saying that, uh, you know, if a trans character is being included in something, a, the cisgender writer, you know, must consult with a, uh, a trans person first. And I sort of agree. I I feel perhaps when, when writers are talking about how other writers should comport themselves in a process, I feel like they are oftentimes sort of reflecting what their own writing process is. And so I don't know this to be a fact, but I just like, I would guess that that writer who said that is herself the kind of writer who would get a consultant about a topic that, that she felt, you know, she needed more sure. um, background. I, because I, I see so many writers come through the door of the Lark who all work so vastly differently. I don't know that I just would sort of put that blanket um, requirement because I guess I just am inclined to give playwrights the benefit of the doubt. And I feel like I just assume that that playwright will have done their due diligence, will have done the research that is sort of necessary to communicate the human qualities of that person. And, And that might very well might include many plays about many different identities. It might include reaching out to a person and seeing if they are, you know, amenable to doing some emotional labor for you by, you know, delving into their experiences so that you might, you know, fully reveal the humanity of the character you're writing. So that was one bit of response I received. And then the sort of 
zeitgeisty response that uh, I referenced is this essay that came out by Nitsan Sharf on HowlRound. It came out eight days after my blog post in Lark. Right, and, I read that as well, yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, wouldn't be like arrogant enough to think that this was a, a actual response to what I wrote. That it's, it, you know, I assume that he was writing this, you know, to express what he is feeling about, about theater and, and trans theater right now. That's a big issue, and I think a lot of people are concerned with it. It is. We're we're all thinking about it, and I'm glad that a lot of people are thinking about it. But we sort of almost off the bat had a different take because he expresses how when he hears that there's a play that has a transgender character in it, um, he, he goes to see it thinking, you know, what new frontiers of gender identity are going to be explored in this piece? Mm-hmm. And I guess I just don't have that. I, 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 while on the one hand, it is like representation is so important and it is so, so powerful to see oneself and one's own experiences reflected back to them mm-hmm. in the theater. I guess I, I go to see, I, I don't just sort of assume that all pieces of theater that include transhumans uh, in their world, I just don't feel like they must reveal new elements of gender identity or, you know... Well, so many people like, go it, to what comes to, mind to see, is, yeah. you know, reflections of their own experience, which has either been subdued or censored mm-hmm. or not given the main stage and the prime time and yeah. you know, representation and acknowledgement is critically important to every human being on the planet. And it's, seeing it's for- super important. And but having said that, while my gender identity and and uh, my transition over the past, you know, three and a half, four years definitely been, I would say like the most defining element and journey of my life in, in these past few years. It's not like it's not the only thing that's happened to me. It's not the only thing I've experienced. And uh, you know, I've I've been in love in that time. And mm-hmm. it would be amazing to see a trans character on the stage or on television who falls in love. But I don't feel I, I would see myself very reflected in that. But I don't feel like I necessarily, in addition to that, need to see the psychology of that person's gender identity, uh, you know, explored or mined to, to the, to the, the, you know, minute detail. Um, and, and an example I, I feel is so wonderful is, um, the musical head over heels, which just closed this past weekend. Um, it's, it ran on Broadway. It opened in August. It's a jukebox musical, The Music of the Go-Go's, that's an adaptation of uh, Philip Sidney's The Arcadia, which is, you know, a a poem from the 16th century. And it had the first trans woman opening and starring in a role on Broadway, Peppermint, Mm -hmm. uh, playing a non-binary character who used them pronouns. Um, Ben Brantley, you know, took a lot of heat in the summer, rightfully so, for you know, writing in his review of the piece, a line that was pretty derisive of that character's pronouns. Um, But in the musical Head Over Heels, while gender is definitely something that is deeply explored as it relates to some of the characters, you know, in the Arcadia, like, like in much Elizabethan era writing, there is a character who crosses 
dances to be in disguise. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are, there are definitely gender is a huge theme in the, in the piece, but the, the character of Pythio played by Peppermint, it's not the only defining trait of that character. They are just inherently fabulous and, and wise and, uh, you know, they're the Oracle. There are so many elements to that person. I don't feel like I necessarily had anything new about the non-binary experience revealed to me, but oh my Lord. I mean, it was, I so appreciated. I mean, I, I cried. I saw it three times and there's the go-go song. I'm mad about you. And in the, the very last time they sing it, um, the character who's in love with Pythio sings, I'm mad about them. And, a, and an entire Broadway theater erupts into applause over the love and, and over this person's pronouns and identity. And it's just, you know, it was beautiful without yeah. being, you know. You know, a, um, it was it was also beautiful because it was so joyful. It sounds I feel wonderful. like yeah, it was wonderful. You know, it, it it wasn't perfect. Nothing's perfect, and it was written by I I will point out it was written by cisgender writers, and so there are a couple of moments in the piece where I feel like you know I would have done that differently, and I do feel like you know this line here and this line there. They're a little bit cisentric, and they're a little bit not in, not in the ballpark. Yeah, they're 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 not like way out of the ballpark, but mm-hmm. they're definitely not how I sure. would have written it. Like I'm not going to say like perfect. that. That's fine. Nothing's perfect, but yeah. also that that's like it's okay. I can call that out. I can say that mm-hmm. that you know this line. It it was like a huge punchline. It got a lot of laughs, and I think that maybe. Like, while that might have been a funny line for cis people, it might have not been a funny line for trans people. I can say that. Yeah. And that itself is okay. The actual act of calling out is fine. I, I, I wish that there were less of a all or nothing that if someone gets called out for something that it means like they failed. I mean, one well, can't... I think it's just people keeping tabs on each other. I mean, we'd, we'd all like to produce work that is good and has depth and is true to not only the characters, but decent to the people in the room with us. And many of us are going to make mistakes, no matter who we are, no matter how much research we do, and no matter how much effort we put into making something as perfect as possible. It's not going to be. Um, and being called out, like you said earlier, is one way for people to, to maintain this conversation and to keep track of who we are and where we're going, I think. I agree. I, the last thing I'll say about, this wasn't even about feedback I received. I read this a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. um, and it's gender, but the playwright, Danye Love, who uh, has been a lark fellow and a Lark affiliated playwright for a couple of years. Um, he shared a post a few months ago that was about the similar, although not, uh, certainly not identical issue of, uh, writers and race in the theater. And, and the post that he shared was calling for writers sort of stop making a to stop writing roles that they then say could be played by any race. And the call to arms was sort of do the work, do your homework, write a play that, you know, that has a character of color that is specific to that character of 
colors, you know, culture and identity. And if you don't succeed, like be willing to be called out and to learn from that and, you know, do that. And yeah. like I said, that's another thing about the, some of the feedback I got on my articles. A lot of people very, very quickly wanted to go to, well, how does this intersect with race? Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I, I point out that though similar, they are certainly not identical situations. Um, but I, that, that resonates with me too, you know, don't, that's where that line that you mentioned, don't be fragile sort of came from. Uh, I think it is better to write a transgender character and have someone correct you and, and give you the ability to update it and revise and improve the, how you portray the humanity of that character than it is to not try. I agree with you, but it's a risk too. People are afraid of misrepresenting and, uh, or uh, even worse, insulting somebody you've never met. I know. And I, and I love that. I love that feeling exists. I know that of course there are people who maybe don't care about that. And those aren't the people I'm talking to. I'm, I was specifically talking to the people who do care because just by virtue of the fact that they do and that they don't want to be appropriative or to misrepresent or to injure or offend, I give the benefit of the doubt and have faith that that writer will take the necessary care Mm-hmm. Um, and I want, and I want them to try. I, I, I want them to believe in themselves that they'll take that necessary care as well. Let's let's change over a little bit here. I want to talk sure. more about you. You are a playwright. Let's talk about your work and what I usually do with with writers. I'm not immediately familiar with. I ask the same thing. Let's who and what do you write about? What was your last play about? Let's talk about that. Sure. Well, I have I have many projects that I juggle at once. So the last two pieces that I had that I worked on quite recently, I have a play called Aunt Jack, which is a bit dense. So hold on for the short version. Um, (laughs) It's about the son of a gay historian and a drag performer who uh, is gay, identifies as gay, and himself in his, you know, 20s, falling in love with a woman and, you know, the complications that that presents to his family. That's a play I I had produced in Fort Lauderdale, Florida over the summer and also in Randolph, Vermont. And then the other piece that I worked on a bit more recently than that is I had a workshop at the York Theater of a musical I've been working on for a couple of years called Tyrants, which is about Edwin Booth who's the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who was the most famous actor in America uh, in the 19th century, who mostly a shabby footnote because of the horrible thing that his brother did. I think there is a theme in my work. I, I definitely do think that identity, how one sees themselves versus how one is seen by the world is something that has run through everything I've written what is the limit of our responsibility for our community? Um, So I feel like I often write about folks who are either not taking responsibility for something that they ought to, or who are trying to take responsibility for something that's past. Those are definitely the themes that interest me the most. 
You got anything coming up that we should know about? Yeah. So the, the play I mentioned, Aunt Jack, is going to have its New York premiere uh, in June of this year at Theater for the New City, which is a, a theater I love very dearly in the East Village of Manhattan. I want to touch on one last thing, and then I will let you go because you're busy, and this is the middle of your work day. But you mentioned being a child actor, but you didn't mention working with Charles Bush, who is legendary in the business, uh, Vampire yeah. Lesbians of Sodom and many other hilarious, hilarious plays that were pretty much groundbreaking at the time. What was it like working with him? Well, it's been the most defining experience. It's been the most defining relationship my career. I was a child actor, and when I was years old, I got a call from my manager saying that I had an audition for a workshop at Manhattan Theater Club of a new play, uh, that was going to star Patti LuPone. Didn't say who the playwright was. Patti LuPone, like the 11-year-old queen that I was. <laughs> and I just said to my mother, I, I, have, I have to get this part. I must. And I went in for an audition and learned that the play was by Charles Bush, who I had heard of because it, this was only a couple of years after Tale of the Allergist. Mm-hmm. I think it had closed just a year earlier. So I had him, uh, but I have been allowed to see any of his plays at that time in my life. Um, so I go into the audition room. I'm reading a scene that's between this character. They took place at a theater summer camp, but it was about the adults. And so I was auditioning to play the only child in the play who was really sort of the outcast that was based sort of on Charles himself, on his younger self. Yeah. And so I was auditioning for that, and I'm reading a scene with the Patti LuPone character. Um, but I go in, and the reader is Charles. And I auditioned for thousands of things when I was a child, including many very exciting, cool things where I read with many exciting and cool people. But that's the only one that I could close my eyes, and I could moment for moment remember what that audition was like. And it's very funny, actually. It just occurred to me that I'm sitting here um, at the Lark, which is four floors down from Manhattan Theater Club. So I'm working in the building where I had this sort of life-changing experience. But I read with Charles, and he was luckily as, as taken with I was with him, and he really saw a kindred spirit in me. I was a, an, uh, a very eccentric kid. Um, my frame of reference in terms of popular culture uh, was mostly relegated to the 1940s through the 1960s. And I didn't have anyone who really shared those interests, including in my family. You know, my family is not in the theater at all. Mm. Um, they've been incredibly supportive and were very supportive of me going to the theater. But my, I always say, you know, my mother knew that there was something that Charles could offer me in terms of relating to me and in terms of uh, understanding me that even she herself couldn't. And um, so I did this workshop of this play. It didn't end up, you know, going on to Broadway. And then Charles wrote me a part in this annual Christmas show that he has called Times Square Angel, which is at Theater for the New City, where I'll be doing Aunt Jack. And so he wrote this part, Jimmy the Newsboy, for me. And I've been playing it every year, once a year, since I was 11. So I've been doing it, I think this past year was my 15th year. And this environment where every person I, you know, half of the cast, more than half of the cast, 
drag and where pronouns were sort of tossed around interchangeably. And then when I was about 13, I kept in touch with Charles. My mom kept in touch with Charles. And when I was 13, he reached out to my mother and said, you know, I'd be very interested in um, taking Sean, which was how I was what I went by back then, um, to the theater. And so my mother said, okay. And so for about once a month for my entire adolescence, Charles and I would go to the theater and he'd take me backstage most of the times to meet people and we'd get dinner and he really sort of became an anti-mame for me. And also because he was, a, in addition to the gender question, because he was a playwright performer, I never saw a, a distinction between the two and I, and I always saw myself as being a writer yeah. even before I started writing anything. So then when I decided to go to college for playwriting, it seemed just like the most natural thing in the world. And he was so supportive and he, he read all of my first drafts all through college. And sometimes he still does, which is very nice. And, yeah, and Aunt Jack, it is. Nice. It is. And, and my play Aunt Jack, and also I, I have a musical called Diva Live from Hell, um, which I did two years ago. Um, they're really sort of, tributes to him. I mean, I just was, I so wanted to be like him. You know, I feel like everyone, most everyone has that family member who they just adore and want to be like, if it's one of their parents or grandparents or an aunt or an uncle. And, uh, for me, that was Charles. I just absolutely wanted to be exactly like him. And so, yeah, it's really been like the most defining relationship, uh, certainly of my life in the theater and definitely one of the top defining relationships in my life. It sounds like an extremely fortunate thing. To- Don't I know it? I, yeah. I really am so, I am. I, I was so lucky. Uh, not only is it an experience, you know, and for all the reasons you enumerated that many people don't get, also just to, for a young queer kid who was very sheltered and didn't realize they were queer yet because they just didn't have that vocabulary, yeah. to be seen by someone who saw me and and knew who I was, um, who didn't have any questions, and who was just entirely willing and able to see me and accept me for who I am. I mean, I, I do. I wish that every person in the community could have that because it's the greatest yeah. gift of my life. Everybody should be that lucky. Everyone yeah. should. Well, S.P. Monaghan, this has been a wonderful conversation to have had with you. And for thank me you too. so very, very much for, for being here and, and having this conversation. Um, please tell us how my uh, audience can find out more about you. Do you have a website? Is there a I way do. we can, you know? And thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation for me as well. Um, I have my website is S. P Monahan M O N A H A M dot N Y C, um, and that's the best way to find out about me. And then um, there's also, if I can put in a small plug, I'd encourage people also to visit larktheater.org for more uh, articles and essays like the one that I wrote. So that's larktheater T H E A T R E dot org. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Thanks, George. Hey kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. 
And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 